Good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 17, beginning at verse 24, Matthew writes, Now when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when, they came in, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect toils, uh, tolls or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Matthew under the, uh, the inspiration of your spirit as you breathed out the scriptures, including this narrative. Uh, please help us this morning to, to glean it and to understand it well and to see your purpose for giving it to us. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this is an interesting narrative. It is uh, somewhat light in tone. It's fairly different than what we've seen in in Matthew in recent chapters. Uh, It's only included in the Gospel of Matthew. That alone makes it interesting for the synoptic Gospels. And uh, I'm going to try and explain what's happening in it and then draw some conclusions from it, but we don't quite have the direct point that we often do. Uh, So a a few things that I'm going to try and cover with you this morning is the fact that clearly Jesus is not subject to the uh, traditions of the temple. He declares himself to be exempt from that. Uh, And in the process of doing this, then we'll talk about how the tabernacle was uh, built and supported. We'll talk about how the temple was to be supported, how that differs from the support of the men who made their living uh, serving there, and uh, think about how the Lord wants us to give as well. So let's begin with this two drachma tax. Jesus and his disciples have been up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. He was transfigured there. They came down. He cast the demon out of a boy uh, that a father brought to him. And then they return to Galilee, they return to Capernaum. And when they come into Capernaum, men who were collecting the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked about whether Jesus paid that tax. The two drachma tax was not a Roman tax. It was not a secular tax. It was not collected by King Herod. It had to do with the temple. It had to do with the support of the temple. It began as a custom following the exile in Assyria. You remember they had been taken captive by the Assyrian Empire in the 700s and 600s. They were held captive for a period of 70 years, and then permission was given to begin returning. Ezra returned first. Ezra oversaw the restoration of the temple, and then uh, uh, about half a generation later, Nehemiah returned. Ezra was still alive. Nehemiah returned and oversaw the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 8, having fulfilled that purpose 
uh, Nehemiah was not only an administrator, he was a pastor at heart. All the people gathered, probably at the Temple Mount, the temple area. They built a wooden platform for Ezra to stand on. They built a pulpit for him to stand on. And he read the law of Moses to them. As he read, men worked their way through the crowd. They interpreted the word, that is, they helped the people understand what it was they were hearing. This crowd of people who have been held captive in Assyria and now have been able to come home, who have seen the temple restored and now the city walls built, giving them some security, are so moved by what they hear in the law of God that they begin to confess their sins. And Nehemiah 9 is this long chapter of the confession of the sins of the people, primarily idolatry. They confess their sins, and they confess the sins of their their fathers and their grandfathers that led to the captivity. In the process of this, then, they they came to an agreement. They formed a covenant together. They, They literally say, let's cut a document together. Let's form a covenant together so this never happens again. Let's guard ourselves against idolatry. Written into that document is this interesting statement in Nehemiah 10, verses 32 and 33. We also set ourselves under the commandments to give yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of of our God. So a third of a shekel would be a little over a day's wage. Um, They make a voluntary commitment to this. That's what those words, we also set ourselves under this commandment. We've agreed together. We've made a promise to provide for the temple. Uh, This is a a voluntary gift. It was not something that was required of them. Uh, The amount, we don't need to bring the slides up, Penny, but the amount was probably taken from Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30, God says, if for some reason you decide to have a census of the people, each person you count is going to have to pay a ransom. Uh, God was generally opposed to taking a census. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why, it could be that it's, it's as simple as if the census is low, the people would be afraid. We're not, very, we're not very many people. And if the census was high, they'd become proud. Look how strong we are. Either case, God says, if you do a census, each person, each man counted, has to pay half a shekel. It's not very much. Half a shekel would have been a day's wage. It's not very much money. And I think that in the time of Nehemiah, while it's not that gift, they probably took it from that. We need to collect an amount from each man in Israel over the age of 20 to pay for the basic upkeep of the temple. We've got to buy the materials to make the showbread. We've got to obtain wood to burn the sacrifices. We need the daily sacrifices provided. If you brought a sin offering, you brought your own lamb, you brought your own animal, but there were sacrifices in the morning and the evening, and all of that has to be paid for. How are we going to pay for it? Well, let's just divvy it up. Let's just everybody contribute a little bit each year. Now, this is different than the annual tithe that was required by the Lord in Numbers 18 and 
Leviticus 27. That annual tithe was 20, uh, 27%. It was 10%, Leviticus 27. That's how my mind works. It was 10% of their annual agricultural production or income for the year. So a farmer would bring 10% of his crop, 10% of his produce. If he had a vineyard, he would be, bring 10% of his wine. If he had olive groves, he would bring 10% of his oil. And he brought that specifically for the Levites to have a living. When the tribes entered the land, the tribe of Levi was not given any land. They were to simply serve in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. So they got their living from that. Um, when they built the tabernacle, we can go to this, Exodus thirty-five twenty-nine. The funds to build the tabernacle did not come from a required tithe. The sons of Israel... All the men and women whose heart was willing to bring material for all the work, which Yahweh had commanded through the hand of Moses to do, brought a free will offering to Yahweh. How did they build the tabernacle? They needed all of the skins and the fabric. They needed the, the metal for the rings. They needed all of the materials, the thread, all of it. How did they get it? God didn't say, you're going to tax everybody. God said, you know what? If, you're, if you have a willing heart, you bring a free will offering. That's how the temple, the, the tabernacle rather, was built. I think it's probably how the tabernacle was maintained. They didn't tax the people. They simply said, as you come to worship, if the Lord has granted you a willing heart and you have a free will offering of a little bit or a lot, you give that and it goes toward the maintenance of all of that. What's interesting to me about, about this verse, women are not commanded to pay a tithe. Men are commanded to pay a tithe because women generally did not have a source of income. And yet women brought this free will gift from a willing heart just as much. They had possessions. God says, I'm not going to require women to give above and beyond their husbands or their fathers. But if you wish to bring a gift out of a willing heart, it's welcome. He opens that up to them. So looking back then to Nehemiah, we see that the support of the temple was going to come through willing hearts and free will offerings. And they committed themselves. They weren't commanded by a law. They said, we promised together to bring this amount. It happened from the generosity of the people. But eventually over time, what started as personal generosity becomes a custom, and then it becomes a tradition. And by the time we get to Jesus, they've got men going around and collecting this two drachma tax. Two drachmas would be a shekel. So two drachmas would be two days' income. It's not very much. It's a small amount. It's not a huge amount. But nevertheless, it ceased to be a free will offering from willing hearts. And it simply became another burden on the people. Now, I can't prove this. This is pure speculation. But just thinking about human nature, I think that they probably would have brought in more funds if they had left it a free will offering from willing hearts than by requiring it. Because people are like that. Now, as we look at, the, at, at verse 24, these men who are collecting it are not coming in a heavy-handed way. In fact, the question that they ask Peter 
does not your teacher pay the two drachma tax? That's a, that's a, a good translation of it. But in the original text, it has a positive tone to it. They, they kind of ask, your, your teacher obviously pays the two drachma tax, right? They're expecting a yes answer. And Peter assumes, we see that in the text, Peter assumes, yes, of course, why wouldn't he? Every man over the age of 20 pays this, yes, obviously. And they go on their way. They don't demand a receipt. They don't demand proof. They obviously don't have lists of who pays. Peter goes in the house, and Jesus, knowing the conversation that's taken place, initiates a conversation with Peter. Peter, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth collect tolls and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now, in the United States, our system is supposed to tax everybody. There there are built-in deductions. There are certain kinds of income that are not taxable, but many kinds of income are. People pay sales taxes, people pay property taxes, and it's all done according to the rule of law. But in the ancient world, kings simply said, we're going to tax you so much, and we're going to tax you a different amount. And that was simply the way that it happened. That's not so ancient, by the way. When, when I was reading this week, uh, the British royal family are exempt from all taxes. Exempt from all taxes. What I read was that Prince William voluntarily pays at the maximum rate, but he's not required to. Because in, in England, the crown technically owns everything. And so if they tax their own children, They're simply taxing themselves. So that system still functions to some degree in the world today. Certainly in the ancient world, Peter understood that a king wouldn't collect taxes or tolls from his sons, from his family members, maybe from friends, maybe from other confidants within the palace. Who are you going to tax? You're going to tax the other people. You're going to tax the people you don't know. Strangers, some translations say foreigners. And Jesus points out the conclusion. Then in the world system, the sons are exempt. In the world system, the sons are exempt. At this time, the emperor of Rome is a man named Tiberius. Tiberius's sons didn't pay taxes. They were exempt. Peter knew it. Everybody knew it. Herod's sons didn't pay taxes. Everybody knew that. Whether or not it was fair was beside the point. It's simply the way that it functioned. So the conclusion is that the sons are exempt. Why is Matthew telling us this? Because Jesus is exempt from temple taxes. The temple exists for the worship of Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The temple owed Jesus. The people owed him worship. He didn't owe them anything. There's an interesting statement in Revelation chapter 5. The song of praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, Jesus obviously, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, but riches. He has a right to the immaterial things of our praise and our worship, and our love, and our adoration. And he has the right to our stuff. He's worthy. 
of it. He's not obligated to pay. He's entitled to receive. In verse 27, we see Jesus take the path of least offense. Now again, Jesus is not required to pay for the privilege of being worshipped. The sons are exempt. And it's, it's possible that he had never paid this tax. And he tells Peter, go fishing, catch a fish. The fish will have a coin in its mouth. You use that coin to pay for you and me. So it's possible that Jesus simply had not paid the tax that year, right? But I think it's possible that Jesus had never paid this tax. It was not commanded in the law of God. It was a human tradition. But Jesus says, so that we don't give offense... Go to the sea, throw in a hook, take out the first fish that comes out. When you open its mouth, you'll find a stator, that is four drachmas. This is a two drachma tax for each person. Four drachma coin pays for Peter and Jesus both. Give it to them for me and you. So Jesus includes Peter in the word sons. The sons are exempt. Peter is included in that. The disciples would have been included in that. Believers are included in that. Does that mean that Jesus was unwilling to support the temple? No, he does so. It means that he is not obligated. It means that what he gives, what, he, what Peter gives, is to be a free will offering from a willing heart. Because that, that, that promise of those during the time of Nehemiah had become a custom and then become a tradition under force. So a couple of things here that are interesting. No sons at all, whether begotten or adopted sons, have to pay this temple tax. It doesn't prevent them from bringing something, but it could not be required. But it's interesting to me that Jesus does not want to needlessly give offense. He was willing to offend on all kinds of things. If they were crucial, if they had to do with God's will, God's creative order, the purpose of the Messiah, the salvation of Israel, who God is, what right worship is, how the temple was to be used. Remember, he cleared out the temple twice. He cleared it out at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of the ministry forcefully because they'd turn it into a, a mall, a shopping mall. He was willing to offend people on those bases, but this is not something worth offending people over. There may have been other things that Jesus participated in that were purely traditional, that were not commanded in the law. John chapter 10, verse 22 says that he was in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of the de Dedication in our time is called Hanukkah. It's not a Levitical feast. It is not one of the feasts given to the people by God. It came into being during the Maccabean Revolt a couple of hundred years before Christ. The story is, and I don't know if it's true because it's not in the scripture, but the story is that during the revolt, the Jews had barricaded themselves within the temple and were being attacked. They had enough light in, for the lampstand in the temple for one day, but the lamp burned for the eight days of battle until they prevailed. And they saw that as a miracle. That's why Hanukkah is eight days long. Jesus is, is in Jerusalem at the feast during the time of the Feast of Dedication, he may have participated in what we would call a Hanukkah celebration as a boy. He may have done it with his disciples. We're not told, but there was no reason not to. 
there was every reason for him not to be commanded to. But he was free to participate if he chose. It's interesting, too, that the Lord provides the money. We know that from John chapter 6 that they kept a money box. People donated money to Jesus and they would give money to the poor. Um, He didn't just heal. He didn't just feed. He gave them money because sometimes you need money. Judas kept the money box. John 12 tells us that he would steal out of it. But Judas kept the money box. Jesus could have said to Peter, you know something? Let's not give any offense. Go see Judas, get four drachmas, and go pay it for us. He doesn't do that. He also could have said to Peter, you know, I'm kind of doing everything here. This is a little amount. You're already committed to pay for yourself. Why don't you pay for me too? But he doesn't do that. He pays for both of them. So I think that there's a reminder in there that we give in order to bless others. Not because God himself is in need. We don't give to the church. We don't give to charities and ministries because God is going broke. We give because he desires us to have willing hearts and generous spirits. But he doesn't need it. We need it. So let's, let's bring this home. It's a little bit of a briefer message today because there's just not a lot of details here, but the bringing it home part will be maybe a little bit longer. I have some observations, and I don't, I don't offer them to you in order, in, in any particular order, that is. Uh, first, we can see how easy it is for personal generosity to become a forced contribution. The people of Nehemiah's day said, we need to support it. We're grateful to the Lord for delivering us and bringing us home. We're going to make a commitment to do this. We take this seriously. Rather than letting subsequent generations come to that same commitment, that became a custom, and then it became a tradition. So much of a tradition that the temple authorities appointed men to go collect it. So it wasn't a voluntary contribution anymore. It wasn't a free will gift from a willing heart. It was required. We can see that it's okay to take the path of least offense when the issue is not critical to the word of God. There are all kinds of things that we, are, we must not compromise on. Anything that is directly commanded or taught by the scriptures, we must not compromise on. But there are many things that we do that are not commanded. We do them by custom, we do them by tradition, we do them by preference. The kind of Bible translation you use is purely a matter of preference. The only thing I care about is that it's a competent translation. Don't use like Bob's translation or something like that. Use a decent, recognized translation, and then it's up to you. It simply doesn't matter. We're not going to argue and fight over those things. We can see God's provision for his people. Peter was used to paying this annual tax. He'd done it since he was 20. Uh, the, other, the other disciples had done it as well. We trust that the Lord is going to provide for us in the big things. But he provides in the little things too. It makes me think of the, the time of Elijah and Elisha when the men were working and the, the hammerhead, the axe head, went flying off and landed in the water and sank. And it's like, that. wow, I borrowed that. That's not mine. And I can't remember which prophet it was, and I can't remember exactly how he did it, but he sprinkled something on the water. My wife's thinking, uh, he sprinkled something on the water, 
and it floated. Why? Because God cares about the little stuff. There, there's, there's not a point where we say to ourselves, this is too little to talk to the Lord about. I do it all the time. Whenever Linda is not home to find my stuff, I'm asking the Lord, would you help me find this? I cannot find this. And he always answers, usually by sending her home is how he does it. But uh, we can see that taking care of the tabernacle or the temple or the church is, is a valid thing to do. The tabernacle is a physical structure. It was not supernaturally protected by God. It suffered wear and tear as they moved and they used wax and they used oil and they used incense. That stuff had to be replaced. The same thing was true for the temple. The same thing is true for a church. Keeping the lights on, keeping the air running so Donna doesn't have to fan herself back there. All of that, it's okay. I get warm too. All of that is, is, is valid. Physical properties need care and maintenance. Supplies need to be replenished. It's also valid to, to, uh, to care for those who serve. This was an Old Testament principle. The Levites had no land. They had no way of making a living and providing for themselves. The other tribes were commanded to bring a tithe. And that 10% tithe was for the Levites. They shared it with indigents, transients, widows, orphans. They did share it out. But the primary purpose of it was to provide for the living of the Levites. It's interesting to me that by the time of Christ, priests worked. They would serve uh, two two-week services through the year, I believe. Twice a year they would go uh, for their two weeks of service, kind of like a military reserve. And the rest of the time they tended to have businesses, probably because the people of Israel were not being obedient. That's actually what God says in Malachi. You're not bringing your tithes into the storehouse. So that's an Old Testament principle, but it's also a New Testament principle. Galatians 6.6 says, And the one who is instructed in the word is to share in all good things with the one who instructs him. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor. That's a reference to money especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. And 1 Corinthians 9 says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Uh, when Linda and I were at our first church in California, because of circumstances and not having yet learned the lessons which the Lord was teaching about trusting him, uh, we had gone, in, in a two-year period of time, we'd had our income cut by two-thirds which I did not feel was a, a livable situation. And so I started sending out resumes, and we got a positive response from a church in Redwood City, California, which is up in the Bay Area. We went up and, and were there for uh, a couple of days. They asked me to preach, not in a candidating sense, but simply to preach and to meet with their leadership and then to be at a potluck for the church after. And uh, all, all went really well. And at the potluck, this man came up to me, and he was deeply offended that I made a living as a pastor. You shouldn't charge for the word of God. I said, I don't charge for the word of God. But you could, you could get somebody who works 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week 
who tries to get 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there to think about the scriptures to come and teach you. Or you could provide for somebody who's able to devote themselves to that in a significant way. And so it's a perfectly valid thing. He was simply ignoring what the scriptures have to say about this. Uh, The principle of generosity in the Old Testament, I think, is very clear in, in Exodus 35. Those with willing hearts brought a free will gift. We see that repeated in the New Testament in in all things. Not just that small gift, but in all things. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver is the principle at play. He wants us to give gladly. He wants us to give cheerfully. He wants us to give not 1% or 5% or 10% or 20%. He wants us to give according to what we purpose. And that's going to be different for each person. You need to find an amount to purpose, considering the obedience of sharing with those who teach, with uh, honoring those who, who labor at preaching the word and teaching, those who proclaim the gospel, getting their living from the gospel. Your part in that needs to be purposed in your heart without grudging it. And there's probably an amount for every person where you've got a grudge line. You, you, you just set an amount and you reach, okay, now this is the grudge line. Don't pass that line, the Lord says. And then there's a compulsion line. And as, as far as I would read it, the compulsion line is being pressured. You know, we don't take an offering. We, we've got an offering box. But it's been years and years and years since I was part of a fellowship that said we're going to stop and take an offering. There are people who miss that and people who see that as a valid point of worship. There are other people who see that as compulsion. And nobody should be compelled. Nobody should be compelled to give. That's not how it's supposed to work. So your giving here, just to be really blunt, is not just about paying the lease and keeping the lights on and and paying for my living and my family. It's about your blessing and about your share in what God has given you. You're to give as you purpose in your heart. That's all I care about. It it truly is. It truly is. Um, You're to give without grudging. And so the point where, at which you say, this is what I can give freely, happily, cheerfully, that's the amount that you're to give. And please know that you're not compelled. Nobody is compelled. I love what Jesus says. The sons are exempt. There's no tax. There's no toll. There's no ticket price. There's no entrance fee. What we give financially, how we serve, what, what we give in terms of time and energy and abilities, the mercy that we show to one another, it's all under the same principle. To purpose to do a thing and to do it freely, not grudgingly, to doing it from a willing heart, not compelled, and then enjoy the fact that God rejoices in your cheerfulness as you share.
whatever it is you share and however it is you share. Father, we thank you for this this little story in in Matthew, this narrative. It certainly kind of stands out as as being a, a lighter moment. And yet there's some good things here. There's some uh, important things here. Jesus was not compelled, but he shared. He shared freely. He provided for Peter to be able to uh, participate as well. And I thank you that uh, although you typically don't rain heaven, uh, bread down out of heaven for us today, you, you enable us to work and enable us out of what we, uh, what we gain through our work and what we gain through uh, our knowledge and life experience so that we are able to give not only money, but to give grace, to give love, to give mercy and to give patience, to give wisdom as you have granted it to us. And I ask that you would help us to keep 2 Corinthians 9, 7 in mind, that in every way that we serve, it would be without any grudging. In every way that we serve, it would be free of compulsion. Please especially keep a watch over my mind, over my attitude, that of Pastor Justin as well, so that we never give a sense of compulsion because you love cheerful givers you love cheerful servants we live in a world that's hard to be cheerful in and so would you grant us a cheerfulness as we serve you as we bless others according to the way that you've blessed us we thank you for all of this in jesus precious name amen